Welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with all of the master artisans and craftsmen, on-screen talent, behind-the-lens talent, uh, directors, writers, composers, cinematographers, editors, uh, sound designers, costumers, production designers, and find out the ins and outs of making what you see on your big and small screens today. Um, very, very excited about today's show. Um, first up, you're going to hear my exclusive pre-recorded interview with one of my favorite directors, Lynn Shelton. Um, for a number of years, it was every year Lynn and I were doing multiple interviews because she was churning out films, Hump Day, Your Sister, Sister, Laggies, Touchy Feely. Then she moved into television and has spent the past few years doing uh, directing Fresh Off the Boat, Glow, Santa Cl episodes of uh, Santa Clarita, Clarita Diet, Shameless, and others. But she is back with a new film, just as funny as her, er as her earlier films, particularly a uh, film like Hump Day, which starred uh, Mark and Jay Duplass. Um, sort of, sort of trust is it. Okay. I laughed out loud through most of the film. And what's very, very interesting about the way Lynn writes and directs is that she writes a script treatment. She doesn't write a full script. This one was a little more fleshed out than some of her prior works have been, but it revolves around having your actors that as she calls are, are cultivated are curated so that they mesh because it becomes a case of situational improv with the performance and bringing the film to life. And in this case, she's got some incredible talent, comedic talent in the form of Michaela Watkins, Julian, uh, Jillian Bell, Mark Marone, John Bass, uh, Don Bakedale or Backdale. I never get his name right. Um, but absolutely funny from beginning to end there is some great poignancy in there as well and it's basically a story about Cynthia and Mary they go to collect Cynthia's inheritance from her grandpappy in the deep south they thought that they were getting the house what they ended up with was a sword and but then a story comes attached to the sword as it may be proof that the south won the civil war and with that premise in mind the film just takes off so you're going to hear uh, my exclusive with Lynn in just a minute. And it's always so much. It was very hard trimming this 45 minutes down uh, to about a 28-minute interview for you, uh, trying to keep in because Lynn has such an incredible sense of humor. And she smiles and laughs the whole time she talks about her films. And it's such a joy. But at the midpoint of the show... We have writer-director Frederick Cipolletti joining us to talk about his new film that's opening this week, also Desolate. I am beyond intrigued with this film, and I can't wait to talk to Frederick about it. Um, minimal dialogue. It's a thriller. Uh, it's set. I mean, it's beautifully lensed, absolutely beautifully lensed by Isaac Bauman. And it takes place in the middle of or at the end of a long, long, long drought. And what has happened to 
families of farmers as they get exploited and they don't have crops and they don't have cash. And what do you do when desperation sets in? And it leads to just major, major fallout. Uh, a lot of gunplay. Uh, so I can't wait to talk to Frederick and we'll get more into Desolate when he comes on and he'll be joining us live. But uh, in the meantime, why don't we take a listen uh, to my interview with Lynn Shelton. And we actually, Lynn and I don't do interviews with even a hello. It's like we just start right in. And we started talking about uh, the gap between her last film, Outside In, and making Sword of Trust, and working in television, and how television helped her grow as a filmmaker. So take a listen, and I'll be back to chat with you and with Frederick Cipolletti after we hear this interview with Lynn Shelton talking Sword of Trust. What I realized when I got on the set of Outside In was I became, I was such a better filmmaker or, or, or more confident at ease in my own yeah. skin filmmaker, you know, um, because I love those earlier movies. I don't want to throw them under the bus, but it just the process of making movies mm -hmm. in the, the last two films was so much more, um, less anxiety <laughs> ridden, <laughs> you know. Because um, no, of all that, all that TV, like I was just yeah. on set constantly. You can't help, well, you know. That. Especially when you get into series like Fresh, uh, Fresh Off the Boat. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're doing nine, ten episodes of that glow. You're doing multiple. Mm -hmm. It's not even that you're going in and getting out. Yeah, you're establishing. That's true. A routine over many, many, many weeks. Many more than you get with indie, low budget, no budget. Yes, exactly. Well, when I was doing when you were when we were, were meeting every year. Back then, I was doing an average of, you know, I was probably on set an average of two weeks a year or something because I make movies so fast. Yeah. <laughs> but then I'd have to, you know, edit that film and write the next one. And so actually being on set, I didn't start doing that a lot until I started doing television. And then I'm just, I'm on, on set more often than not. And yeah, the, the logged hours can't help but accumulate a sense of... Mm -hmm. of competence and comp confidence and you know I was given challenges that I would either have been too scared to give myself if I was writing my movie or just wouldn't have even thought to do it you know like the episode of Shameless I always think I did one oh, episode God. of Shameless and I had there was a baby born on a kitchen table there was a hot car chase and a crash there were you know I mean just all kinds of things that happened and mud wrestling scenes and it was just crazy shit but, you know the big difference between all that television you did mm -hmm. and your filmmaking style is that is all very rigidly scripted Right, right. Well, there is some play, like, New Girl is a great example. When I first started doing New Girls, um, there was always, let's open it up. And sometimes, you know, depends on the show. Right. Definitely not Mad Men, you know, but, but no. some shows that are more comedic definitely like that. You know, they like to open it up or have, um, give the actors the opportunity to kind of, you know, play a little bit or loosen it up. But, but you take overall, play, but you yeah. and your films, <laughs> it's like you do a film like Hump Day, you got the boys there. Yeah. Okay, it's a free-for-all. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, and you know, your sort of trust was a return to that because I made between your sister's sister and sort of trust, I made touchy-feely, laggies, outside in, and those were all pretty scripted. Yeah. Touchy-feely had a little bit of improv, 
maybe Waggies, I think, was more scripted. Waggies was totally yeah. scripted. You know, and sometimes Rockwell would like add a little something, something. But generally, it was really scripted. Outside in was very scripted. We would sort of rewrite a little bit or add on the day, but it again very scripted. And and sort of trust was like I wanted to really go back to Hump Day, your sister, sister, like let the actors find their way through the beats of the scene. And I mean, update was a 10 page treatment with no dialogue written. Mm-hmm. Essentially. This was like a 50 page, I call scriptment, like okay. half script, half treatment. Yeah. But even the lines that were written were. Yeah. Because I know you have a very specific comedic sensibility. <laughs> so at least with your scriptment, mm-hmm. you know, it gives the actors an idea of what you're looking for in terms of the comedy beat. Well, really, it was in in the case of sort of trust. It was very plot heavy, yeah. you know. So I needed I had this very tightly constructed plot, yeah. and so I was asking the actors to do really heavy lifting in terms of not only do you have to come up with all the words yourself, but I need you to lay the groundwork right. for these various expositional points that will then mm-hmm. be paid off later, you know. So you you hear in the dailies, I'm much more hands on, you know, handsy than I was in Hump Day, for instance, where I'll be like, that was that was great, but just do it again and don't forget the thing about the thing that we need to set up for the other thing, you know. And yeah. so I'm sure I don't know how they didn't, yeah, I don't know why they were so tolerant of me, but they were so game and so sweet. <laughs> like, all right, Shelton, shut up. We're trying to do our job here. I'm getting to that, you know. It, they were really they were so great. And but. It's so funny because the big thing I write situational improv is what I call what this film is. Oh, I love it. Because you really, everything is dependent upon the situation and the direction it's going as mm-hmm. to what the dialogue of the physical comedy is going to be. Yeah, genuinely reacting to what the that's, situation that's is. That's just it. Yeah, yeah. You know, how are you going to react if a Civil War sword is coming down towards your head? <laughs> exactly. And... You know, I mean, the other element of that is knowing knowing who you are. Each of those actors really had a firm understanding of who their character was, so they could believably react to whatever the situation right. was. And knowing who they are and who they are to each other, you know. So I got Michaela Watkins and Jillian Bell together mm-hmm. before, long before we got there. To and I sat with them and we talked about their potential backstories. But you know, they had so much. They brought so much of their own ideas. Yeah, I mean, if you look at her work on SNL. Um, or other sort of broader, just pure mm-hmm. comedic stuff. And then you look at Casual on Hulu, which is just the most grounded, dramatic, right. like really natural mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, funny still, but really, also really like poignant and real. She can do it all. Jillian's the same though, you know? I mean, they all are, really. I mean, it's, and Mark certainly. I mean, it's it's really, even though a lot of the, everybody except for Mark had more of a comedic, a lot of them came out of the Chicago improv scene mm-hmm. or, the, or the groundlings right. or some kind of a genuine comedic improv background. Um, they're all capable of very emotionally authentic performances mm-hmm. as well. It was a very curated list uh, of cast members mm-hmm. because I know from experience that some of my favorite actors in the world are not capable of right. improv. Or it's harder for them. But the, So I really needed these to be uh, vetted as mm-hmm. definitely being able to yeah. improvise. Where did the idea for this even come from? <laughs> Who in the world thinks about something like this? Well, it came from a, a number of different sources all sort of combining together. It started with Mark being my muse. I wanted to make a movie with him. And that's how a lot of my movies have started. It's yeah. an actor I want to work with. So I was trying... He had made 
me aware that he would be happy to, you know, to uh, collaborate. So I was trying to think of a different scenario, a different, you know, some kind of a character that might be interesting for him. I passed a pawn shop one day. Oh my God, he belongs in a pawn shop. That's where he needs to be. And what a great territory for different weird characters to come in and encounters to happen. So I knew there would be a pawn shop. I knew he'd be the broker. I knew there would be a con involved. I wanted it to be relevant to what's happening in the culture, but without <laughs> making you walk out of the theater and want to slit your wrists. Like, I wanted it to also you have did, levity. You did everything but hang the Confederate flag and some woman, you know. <laughs> well, we're having a peak moment right now yeah, in, with conspiracy so. theory, our conspiracy theorist-in-chief. Yes. So even though they've been around forever, we're really having conspiracy theories. We're having a peak moment, which is very uh, disturbing to me. So I wanted to refer to that. I wanted to use improvisation. So there were all these different elements, and I got, um, it was actually all because my friend Stephen Shart, who had produced some of my earlier works, Your Sister's Sister, and had been a um, touchy-feely, he is now living in Kentucky, and he basically offered his, he has sort of an Airbnb, and he said, Mm -hmm. come out with Mike and have a writer's retreat, and maybe you should shoot it in Kentucky as well, and that got us going down this whole Southern-based thing. So then that's, yeah, that's how it sort of turned, evolved into this, like, this artifact that had, problematic artifact, mm-hmm. this idea of an heirloom that was like, ah, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> and and so then my friend Ted Speaker, who ended up being the producer, it took me a while to find the person who was going to produce it. And he said, listen, if you could move it, because he lives in Birmingham. So he said, if you could bring it to Alabama... And all I needed was a southern state, you know. That's so it. I was like, great, perfect. It's, it's kismet, you yeah. know. Yeah, so it was a weird organic, you know. And I'd had an experience as well a few years back with an Uber driver who seemed very normal. We were on this long ride together. We were just chatting away. And at the end, he starts telling me about his belief that the earth is flat. And I was, I'd never heard of this as being a thing, you know, which there is a people believe this right now which I have oh, no idea every day I see something on the internet about it's insane it. so I had no idea and he's but he's trying to explain it to me this is basically this is recreated in the movie where you know this person is trying to like take in what they're hearing and well clearly it's got to be a joke and then you realize it's not a joke she, he really thinks this and you're like what's my brain was just like what and I remember him turning to me and saying listen I was exactly where you were a year ago I totally get it all you got to do is just google it google it it's all there it's 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 it, you know un, indisputable and i just i was like that has got to end up in a movie so that was another thing and it was kind of the sprouting oh of the whole God. conspiracy theory thing but you know one of the key things that that is so essential with your films in particular mm-hmm. i think so difficult when you have a lot of this improv uh-huh. happening you're editing Oh, God. You know, you bring in Tyler Cook, who yeah. is... He, he's amazing with television, and I'm yeah. really curious. Because of the way this film is, is structured, mm-hmm. it's structured very much... It could be an episodic television show. Yeah, true. How, how important was it to bring Tyler in as your editor with all that television experience, episodic mm-hmm. experience? Did that impact the approach to editing? I don't think or? so. It was more that, I mean, the, the, really, I met him on, he, he edited the first three episodes of Glow I ever did. Right. I had a different editor this last season, but um, he's just an amazing collaborator and just a great editor. And it, 
and he has his own really great ideas, but he's also extremely ego-free when I'm in there going, you know, well, let's try this, let's try that. He's like, yeah, great, you know, let's just do it. It's very, it's a very ego-free environment. It's extremely kind-hearted and sweet in addition to being very talented. So my, my main thing was, is he going to be able to do improv? Because um, cutting improvisational material is a lot more akin to cutting a documentary. Mm-hmm. You've got all of this footage that's almost found. You know, it's like it's being created. Mm-hmm. You don't have a script. You know, right. you don't have a strict script. So you're not like looking. Oh, let's let's make sure the blueprint of the script is being. You know, no. It's like you're you're writing the script in the edit room, mm-hmm. and it's a different process. And he had done a web series with improv, and I was like, I think he. I, and he's just a great you know editor. So I sort of took a flyer on him a little bit in terms of you know can we do this improv thing together the first cut of that movie was two and a half hours long and I literally and it was all gold it was like how on earth are we going to cut out 10 minutes much less an hour you know to, to and it was just some of the stuff that we left on the cutting room floor was physically painful it was so funny and so hard to let go of but ultimately after we had you know a few brutal you know I was like feedback screenings give us your you know give us your notes and it was just became very clear oh this isn't necessary this isn't helping the story this isn't helping the movie and all we could say was there's have to be outtakes someday because the stuff oh, that's God. on the cutting room floor is so funny and so brilliant but ultimately it's just getting better and better the more we get it down we got it down to 88 minutes i still can't believe it and wow. um i was an editor before you know i was an actor in the theater and then i became an ex- a photographer went to graduate school in photography and then an editor and if i hadn't been an editor I really don't think I could work in this way but there's a part of my brain that is trained to, to be thinking and clocking do yeah. I have enough in there to put it together mm-hmm. later you know and it's like you're in a you have a shopping cart and you're in the grocery store and you're like a certain amount of budget and you know which are the key ingredients I need that mm-hmm. I can make the dinner later you yeah. know and so I, I really don't know I, I don't see how I could do it if I didn't have that part of my brain yeah. that was working in that way. But no, that having that collaborator in in the edit room is absolutely essential, and he's he's brilliant. Well, it's something that that is a testament to you as a filmmaker is because of all of the, the experience you have in the various disciplines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as a writer, you're also not precious with your words because you don't no. typically write full scripts. Therefore, yeah. if something's got to go. Because uh, there are, I know you've come across filmmakers like this, and I talk to so many first-time filmmakers because I'm always trying to give them, you know, a leg up and encouragement. Mm-hmm. And they, I, yeah, and they come on my radio show, and, and it's, I'm like, well, you're wearing all these hats. How are you juggling the writer, director, editor, and producer hat? How precious are you with the words? Oh, well, the words have to stay. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, as an editor, then, what do you do? Well, no, I, I shoot whatever the words are. Yeah. And I keep them. Well, have you thought about having somebody else look? Yeah. Yeah. Because, well, they ain't working. Yeah. If you, yeah, if you, there was a short film that I got invited to edit back when I was just an editor before I started directing narrative work. This, this, playwright had written her first script and she was approaching it like a playwright and she was so precious about her words and could not let go of one or change a single one and couldn't see the forest for the trees that she you know completed this film and it didn't get into any festivals (laughs) 
And finally, a year and a half later, she was ready. She was she was ready to surrender. And somebody recommended that I come in as a, like a doctor, an mm-hmm. edit doctor. And I cut it to ribbons, you know, and said, you don't need this. You don't need this. If you get rid of this big chunk that's not working, it'll... And, and she just had not... And it was so... I, I remember it was such a great lesson for me as, you know, a filmmaker later, filmmaker-to-be, when she just said, oh, if only I had been able emotionally to give up my words yeah. and not be so precious about them from the very minute, you know, in the beginning, even in, in production, you know, but certainly in the edit room, mm-hmm. I would have been able to actually make a more successful film. And and it is something that I am not precious about my words because all I care is about is that it works and whatever that takes whether it's somebody wants to rewrite it because it doesn't feel right coming out of their mouth whether it's Edie Falco says can I just leave this part out it doesn't seem right to me if the, if the actor isn't buying it we're not going to buy it right. you know and and then sometimes some people just work better without a written line at all and they just yeah. you know so even when I'm working with more of a script if we want to loosen up a part of it or you know then great it's really about whatever works and I'm yeah I'm not a writer I could never write a script for somebody else to direct um I'm Ingmar Bergman I I once wrote uh, read a piece that he wrote that he only writes when he knows he's going to direct the thing Mm -hmm. and I'm not a writer who likes to sit in a room and lock myself in and just write all day it's like torture (laughs) which is why the last couple movies I've been happy to invite somebody else into the into the writing process Because I, it makes me more accountable. You know, I won't procrastinate as much because I'll be beholden, you know, to this other person. But also, um, it's just less painful, you know. And again, it's it's about relationship because I find that every aspect of uh, filmmaking is really about relationship for me and about collaborating. And I feel like I'm at my best as a filmmaker when I am the curator of all the best ideas, you know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when it's really flowing both in the edit room or in the writing process or even on set, it's hard to even remember whose idea it was, was, you know, but as a director, I'm the one who has to sort of prune out and figure Mm -hmm. out, okay, this is what stays and this is what goes, but this is the best idea. And it may not be my idea, maybe somebody else's, but I don't care. It works, you know, for the process. But that's why your films work, Lynn. Thank you. That's why they work. (laughs) It's hard because I'm a control freak, so it's hard. But (laughs) doing it that way by not having a totally scripted project, right? You're giving up control already. Yes. So exactly, and it's exhilarating, but it's also terrifying. And but the more that I do it, the more I realize, oh yeah, no, this is the way. And you know, the fact of the matter is that in the edit room is where I'm going to be able to get control back. Because I get to decide, you know, and I can also bend, you know, actors' performances to my will mm-hmm. as well. You know, I can like, I want to add a pause there. You know, why didn't they add, you know, why didn't they yeah. do that faster? And I can take away and add breath and, mm-hmm. you know, say, oh, this one little line they said, I don't like that part. Let's like take that out. We'll look at somebody else at that point so we can just take out that one little word or whatever. You know, we can just do that tweaking and I get to be a part of the performance in that way, both by encouraging on set you know, mm-hmm. the environment and the sort of inspiration or the permission, you know, for them to just like try stuff mm-hmm. out and don't worry about failing because I'm never, I'm never going to let you look bad on screen. Right. You can trust me, you know. Um, but then in the edit room too, I can just do that little bit of extra a tweaking. Little, a little zhuzh, you know. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, you know, one of the big questions though, it's, you know, how does actress, how, how was actress Lynn Shelton behaving on set? You know, was she taking direction as Deirdre? 
I saw, I, you know, Deirdre walks in the pawn shop, and of course you have Deirdre's ring on your finger. Um, it's just, I gotta wonder. Well, the only reason I'm in the movie is because it's Michael Bryan's fault, because Michael Bryan is a performer who is also a writer, but he never wanted to give up performing. So he just assumed I was the same way, that I was a director who never wanted to give up acting. And so he, when we were writing a cast list of the people we wanted to put in the movie, we knew Mark, we knew Michaela, we, you know, we knew these people. <clears throat> he kept putting my name on the cast list, and I kept saying, Mike, I'm not going to be in this movie. Why do you keep putting my name on the cast list? He was like, Lynn, you have to be in the movie. You have to be in the movie. And he was like... And then finally I said, well, I've always wanted to play a drug addict. Maybe I could just be like some random customer who comes in <laughs> and who tries to pawn something to get money for drugs. And that was where it started. And then we realized that Mark's character needed to, as the kind of, even though it's an ensemble cast, he's really the main character. And the way you can tell is that he's the one whose emotional arc you're sort of following yeah. and is, ends up being the spine of the, of the movie. And so it just turned out that, oh, well, let's make her have a little bit more meaning her character as opposed to just being some mm -hmm. random person. So it sort of organically grew out of... And the, the real... <laughs> the panic attack I had was I thought I was making a, 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 a comedy and I could not figure out how I was going to make her funny, you know? And then I finally realized, oh, maybe she doesn't have to be funny. She can be like... Maybe there's this whole other side to the movie where mm -hmm. that it's real really poignant and there's there's real heart to it and sadness and heartache and so I allowed myself once I allowed myself to not be funny yeah. and not you know not try and be a Michaela you know or a Jillian I it was a lot easier yeah and um the thing that was really difficult <laughs> is that when I'm acting it's like two different parts of my brain the director's brain and the actor's mm -hmm. brain and I have to literally turn off the director's brain in order to act mm -hmm. because I can't I have to be in it and I can't be outside looking at the whole scene right you know and so I would literally come out of sort of a, almost a, a a fugue state mm -hmm. at the end of the take and go what just happened did that work I have no idea yeah. and so next time if I ever did that again I would have somebody another director or somebody watching because I didn't have time to go and look at all of my takes like we were just moving moving yeah. so Ted Speaker who was my producer ended up being the one I went up to and just went like what did I not what did I miss what what I need to do and he would give a very simple suggestion or he'd say no you got it or you know mm -hmm. and I'd be like okay because I needed somebody yeah. to help me but I really I love doing it but it was nerve wracking to the acting directing thing I don't know how people do that at the same time because it's literally two different parts of my brain I would be remiss not to ask you about your brilliant cinematographer Jason and oh. this film one of the great things about this you could have gone darker with your visual tonal bandwidth mm -hmm. you didn't you kept it there's a con running okay mm -hmm. that's funny that's light You've got, you know, your two girls, you've got Mary and Cynthia, and they're funny and light. The one who actually has some kind of gravitas is Mel. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, Nathaniel is just, he thinks the world is flat. <laughs> so, but, so you could have pushed the darker mm -hmm. visuals, and you didn't. You kept, you and Jason kept everything light, bright natural light you yeah. went with well I also didn't want it to look like a comedy either and just be flatly lit yeah, and kind of no. overly lit and so I just yeah I wanted it to have that that real the, the 
real world. Yeah, you know, and the thing is, down south, the lighting down south, as many times as I've been down there, mm-hmm. it has a specific look to it. Yeah. There's a specific look within that bounces off the blue sky. Yeah. That bounces the green of the trees, mm-hmm. the grass. Yes, yes. And the natural lighting here, th- this is all, it's natural, It's nothing's heightened, yeah. there's no color correction that makes it go, woo! Yeah, yeah. What, you know, what were the influences that you and Jason came up with for the, the visual? Well, and I have to give a nod to Nate Miller, who who shot Outside In, and he was originally going to be my DP and then had to drop out, sadly, for, you know, just a kind of a personal emergency. And then Jason, um, incredibly, was able to come in with very little prep time. Mm-hmm. I mean, they literally, one tagged out, you know, of Alabama. We were in the middle of prep, and then Jason stepped wow. up to the plate and saved our butts. But he just, he was amazing because we had done some initial ideas and mood boards and then Jason came in and added, took on those ideas, but then added his own and really put his own stamp on it. And I mean, it was just, it was really incredible what he was able to do. One of the touchstones, honestly, was um, Jesus' son. We use that a lot as a, do you remember that film? Yeah. Incredible. I know. And it's one of those, again, one of those interesting films that it's like a road, you know, you're, you're outside a lot. And yeah. I, didn't, I think it was actually a totally different part of the world, but just the real of yeah. it, I really loved that. And this, the poignancy as well as the comedy, you know, and that combination. Mm-hmm. And this was going to be different tonally, but, but also have some sort of a relationship there too. Yeah. So that was sort of a touchstone for us, but... Yeah, a lot. Of, we looked more at dramatic films than we did at comedies because mm-hmm. a lot of times you will find that comedies are just really, um, yeah, just kind of overly sunny, overly lit. Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't want forcing that. you to feel happy. Yes, almost. yes, and I wanted it to always feel like real life. So I, but beautiful, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wanted to be watchable. Um, the other person I have to give a shout out to is John Lavin, who's done, who's production designed my last five movies. Oh my god! And he, with very he, limited he, resources, you can't he make just a film without John. Oh my god, no! And and the, what he did to that pawn shop was really spectacular because we spend so much time in that pawn shop, and every place you look is just amazing looking. Luckily, yeah. you know, and the way the light comes in. So the, between the combination of John and Jason. I mean, I just oh, I was so the, excited the by how it looks. Shop, the way the guitars are lined up on mm-hmm. the walls, the way the cases are laid out and categorized. Yeah. It's yeah. fabulous. Yeah. But then you also have to look at Grandpa's house. Grandpa's yes. house. Oh, my God. And that was a total dress. Yeah, they, they completely created that. This is the first of eight movies I've ever made outside of Washington State. So it's always been the Pacific Northwest. I know that region. It's in my blood. It's in my bones. I know the light. Mm-hmm. I know everything you know about that part of the world. And it was really terrifying to come to a whole new region, which feels like visiting another planet, you know, much less another country at the least. It's so different culturally and so different, like, visually. And I wanted to represent it with respect and not feel like some sort of northerner coming in and making fun of southerners. You know, I didn't want that. So it was really encouraging that, you know, most of the crew was local and they were constantly telling me, um, no, you're doing a great job. Everything, you know, it's great. Like Toby Huss plays this character that oh I worried a little bit. Was Is he too much? You know, and they were like, oh my God, no, I know that guy he lives down the road from me. And in fact, he's even more so than this, you know, than this dude. So they loved him. And he, that made me really happy that. <laughs> but, okay, you know, of course, what, what may, I have to tell you in all honesty, what tickled me the most. Yeah. And it all comes up carrying the Piggly Wiggly bag. We got that. We got that permission last minute, and I was so we had the generic one, and then last minute they were like, "No, we got Piggly Wiggly." I was so happy. 
And on Piggly Wiggly, we will end our Lynn Sh- our exclusive conversation with Lynn Shelton. Those of you that know me are familiar with the show, familiar with my interviews. Everything is a conversation. Nothing is scripted. Questions are never written out uh, in advance. It's always a go with the flow, very much uh, just as is here live on air. And uh, with Lynn, I just cherish every every time I get to talk to her because we do have more fun than we should be allowed. Uh, but yes, put Sword of Trust on your radars, people. And go back and look at some of Lynn's prior works as well. Look at Hump Day, Your Sister's Sister, uh, Laggies, Touchy Feely. Take a look at them and you'll see growth in her as a filmmaker. But you're going to see consistency with the fact all of her films are about characters and their interaction, uh, the chemistry among the characters, and the interchangeability. Uh, that's one thing that stands out when she talks about Sword of Trust is that she curated, carefully curated this cast. And she does this with every film. But filmmakers out there, go back and, you know, after the, after the live show today, we'll have this archived. It'll be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net uh, later tonight. Take a, take a good listen because Lynn imparts so much wisdom about the importance of editing, editing improv, her work as an editor and how it aids her as a director. And then, of course, that always troublesome writer, the director-actor hats, um, you know, how that works. Last year, you got to hear Greg Kinnear talk about how he handled that. And it's very akin to what Lynn is saying about the time spent and you really, really got, and Greg found this out uh, with Phil that he was in 95, if not more percent of the shots. Yeah. He would be in a film he directs in the future, but not in every scene. And here Lynn, it's very judicious. The time that she will put into a character. Um, And she's, she is a funny actress. She truly is. So right now let's move on to something not funny, but, very well done. I'm so happy to welcome Frederick Cipolletti to the show. Hi, Frederick. Hey, how are you, Debbie? Well, I am so excited to be talking to you. Um, just you know, we just it, we just had my exclusive with Lynn Shelton, which was all about a comedy. Now we go to a film desolate that is anything but a comedy, and <laughs> yeah. I've got to tell you a little bit more serious. Well, beyond being serious, the first thing that struck me with this film, it is beautiful to look at. This film deals, oh, thank you. It deals with very serious, sobering subject matter. Uh, farmers, drought, dried up crops, no money. Yeah. You've got a landscape that is parched and barren and brown, and yet your, you and your cinematographer, Isaac Bauman, make this look beautiful and even the barren land has a golden touch to it an umber note so that you know there is there's beauty there yeah Yeah, that was really important for us to showcase that landscape you know the backdrop of the movie is so important and you know we really me and isaac worked really well together he's amazing and um we just really we didn't want to do anything desert you know, we wanted those golden hills to be the backdrop for um, the locations. And I, I think we, you know, we accomplished that and, and did a good job on that. You really did. And 
you know, what also strikes a note because you're talking about, um, you know, the drought and the, and then that translates mm-hmm. into a drought within the human condition. There is no compassion. Yeah. Uh, tensions, yeah. emotions are frayed, nerves are gone. Everybody is, is a loose cannon because they're desperate. Yep. Despair and desperation set in. Um, but you also, it hinges on as you look at it. I also couldn't help but think about, you know, another aspect that you don't, that isn't part of the film, but the whole idea of fires, you know, Mm -hmm. dried out land breeds fire. So you've got, you have very explosive subtext here. Um, but I'm curious, tell everybody where you came up with the idea for this film, not too many people take a narrative look at farmers, the environment, and what it does yeah. to emotions and uh, raw emotion and the human condition. Yeah, well, uh, initially it came to play. We were, um, you know, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and my wife is from Northern California. And I was just, we were just driving up the coast, um, you know, about four years ago, and it, it was. We were going through a drought. You know, California was going through a major drought. And we were just driving through the hills um, on the way to Northern California, and we were just, like, you know, taking it all in because, you know, it it was an issue. And just looking at how dry everything was and people had signs on their their lawns uh, about the drought, when is this going to end, what, you know, know, basically asking for help. And... I was just thinking, like, why is no one really, you know, writing anything about this? And, you know, we just started from there. That was the, you know, the backdrop for the story. And then we just started writing the script and we just, you know, dropped the characters into this uh, location. And, you know, we wanted it to be centered about a family and what, you know, their situation would be, which, you know, a lot of people are in that situation and, you know, how they would deal with it. If, you know, once you can't sell your land and get out, you know, you're kind of trapped in this in this um, spot. And, you know, what are you going to do to kind of better yourself? And, of course, part of that involves a, some criminal activity and then a whole lot of violence. But then there's yeah. but then you also maintain the family core through the character mm-hmm. of Billy, Billy, Van, Kyle. You really maintain that family core. But then you also let us see that the ties that bind do not necessarily remain. Yeah, you know, with the with the family, you know, everyone doesn't always have the the same intention, um, and we really wanted to have each brother be, you know, have their own voice and you know be their own character and. You know, in those situations, those desperate situations, who's going to be for the family, who's not going to be for the family, and what, what's going to happen when you're put in those certain situations and how they deal with it. Yeah, and you have you have a very interesting character in the film that I was fascinated with, uh, the character of Van, played by Callan Mulvey. Um, mm-hmm. e- explain how Van fits into this whole dynamic of the Stone family. You know, I think Van is... You know, he's a lone wolf. You know, he's he's on his own, just like a lot of people are in the situation. You know, the Stones have a family base, but, you know, Ben is kind of on his own and how he deals with surviving in, in this landscape as well. So we wanted to bring in another, you know, character that was dealing with the same situation, but on in his own way. Um, and, you know, when him and Billy come together, 
how that changes the situation. Mm-hmm. And that's a very interesting dynamic that you explore there within your character structure uh, and construct. Uh, once Billy yeah. and Van meet up, then those those familial ties start start breaking, start being questioned. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to see Bill, the friendship, because it definitely starts to feel like a friendship, at least a relationship sure. of mutual trust that starts mm-hmm. to take shape. And seeing that blossom and grow in this desolate area, you know, and desolate time, that adds an, uh, some poignancy and hope to this film. Yeah, I think, I think Van, you know, he sees something in Billy, the innocence in Billy, which he hasn't seen in a long time in that, in that setting. And I think that really starts to change, you know, Van in a certain way that he didn't expect to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and I have I have to commend you on casting Will Britton as Billy. <laughs> uh, he is, and I know you shot this a, a couple of years ago, and I think it was after this film that he shot William, uh, which he is just uh-huh. he's just mind blowing in. Um, yeah, but well, he's amazing. He does a lot of great work. He he works a lot, and he was actually the first person to come on the project, and he was the first actor that I met with, and we just hit it off right away. How difficult was it casting this mix of characters for Desolate? It, you know, it's ve- it's very difficult, you know, because there's so many, you know, there's a lot of brothers, you know. It's not just two, you know, two individuals, you know, it's a big family. Yeah. So how they're going to interact, and we don't want them to interact too friendly because, you know, as, you know, when you watch the movie, you see that they are their own individuals, and they all are all different. So... Getting that dynamic where they were going to, you know, vibe on set, but also, you know, not be too close and have the right dynamic with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there anybody that that was more difficult to get? Because you've got a great cast. You've got Will. You've got Callan. James Russo as the patriarch yeah. is fabulous. You've got Tyson Ritter. You've got uh, Bill Tengrati. I mean, just a one yeah. and each one brings something so different to the to the pal yeah. to the palette you've constructed. You know, things just come together in a way, you know, sometimes with film where it, it, everything is just, just works. And, you know, we just got that cast. You know, we didn't do too much casting. It was just we looked for certain individuals that we thought would be great for the uh, role. And, you know, we were uh, presented with certain um, actors as well. And it came together pretty quickly, honestly. Um you know, we just know we know their past uh, work, and we we're just big fans of everyone. And you know, if, when, once they said they wanted to come on board, I was thrilled. So it just kind of came together, and once they all met, and they were just hitting it off, and I, I we just kind of knew that it was gonna be, it was gonna be great. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm curious here. You know, going back to Isaac Bauman and your cinematography, what led you mm-hmm. what led you to Isaac, and then what kind of visual influences? did the two of you have or look at uh, to come up with the visual tonal bandwidth that, you, that you've created? Well, Isaac was brought to us through uh, one of our producers, Jordan uh, Foley. He, he actually introduced me to Isaac. Um, and, you know, I sat down with him. I looked at all his work, and I was just like, right away, I, I honestly, I knew he was the, the perfect fit for it because he has such a way with images where he, they're dark, but they're beautiful as well. Mm-hmm. 
and it's hard to get that balance. You know, we didn't want it to be too beautiful because, you know, the subject of um, the film, but right. you know, everything he shoots is just amazing. So he had that, he has that consistency to his work. And once we met, we kind of had the same um, ideas for references, what we similar, similar uh, look and mentalities on how we wanted to shoot it. And, you know, he was like, kind of like with Will, like, I met with him, and that was the one. If he wanted to be in, you know, on board, I was I was thrilled. And we just went from there. Well, I mean, I, as you say, I mean, what what Isaac shoots is beautiful, and this is a perfect yeah, showcase. Everything he shoots is beautiful. I mean, in the, you have a lot of yeah, night shoots. Such a gift. Oh, you have a lot of night shoots yeah. here. You've got daytime. You have golden hour shots in here, and then yeah. you know we finally do get. In the third act, we finally have a sun, a blue sky, and uh, you know, blue sky, sunny shot, um, mm-hmm. which really helps buoy the film and give it a sense of hope. Uh, after yeah. seeing every all the violence and all the loss unfold uh, mm-hmm. prior thereto, but each each thing, be it you know, daylight, very natural with sun and blue sky, mm-hmm. be it. Um, Golden hour, be it mid-afternoon uh, with sh- long shadows, yeah. be it the night shoots, which are absolutely gorgeous. Um, yeah. Every every element of the visuals works. And yeah. you, you both pay very close attention to your framing as well. Mm-hmm. Your frame- well, yeah, that was important for us. You know, we wanted to be able to open up the film, you know, and show how vast the land was and how isolated they were. Um, you know, that was one of the, the biggest, um, not, I wouldn't say issues, but, you know, the hardest thing to find the locations that allowed for that, you know, a lot of places, you know, have a lot of properties within a close proximity, so that wouldn't work. And we really needed to search and find those locations that opened the film up and, and allowed us to show, you know, all those rolling dry hills and, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, there's obviously some locations in Northern California where we shot that weren't, you know, completely dry. So we had to shoot around that and make sure that we weren't really showing anything that was green or lush or anything like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, there's nothing verdant about this film. I didn't see any <laughs> any greenery around. <laughs> yeah. It was it was really tough, honestly, to, to make sure that we, we did that. You know, that would kind of, you know, if you're making a movie about a drought, you can't really have a, a lush farmland in the background. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, hand in hand with the whole idea of the drought, and you never know when it's going to end and how long the, the tempers are going to simmer before they explode. Mm-hmm. Um, editing is so key in a film like this. And, yeah. you know, hats off to Scott Beatty and Giacomo Ambrosini, your two editors. Mm-hmm. You you do have a yeah, real pop boiler. A it's a pop boiler, let me tell you, Frederick. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of action in the film, you know, and action takes a lot of time and a lot of editing. And, you know, it was, <laughs> it was a lot of work. But then you also have to find, with a film like this, you've got to find that pacing to build tension. Mm-hmm with the emotional aspects of your characters in the storyline. How long were you in the editing process on this film? That's honestly what took the, uh, the longest thing was the editing process. We were, we were editing for over a year. Um, wow. Just to get it right and get that pacing right, like you said, you know, because there's a lot of emotion, but there's also a lot of action and, and not taking away from the dramatic parts of it with, you know, with too much action and just finding that balance to make it work. 
Mm -hmm. And I have to say that with your action sequences, a lot of it, it's very clean, it's very precise, it's very crisp. Um, it, yeah. It's one gunshot, two gunshots. Mm -hmm. um, you don't harp on it. We're not watching John Wick. Yeah, it's it's not an action. It's not really an action film. You know, there's action in it, but I just wanted it to be more of a realistic action. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a realistic violence. You know, it's it's not a shoot 'em up kind of thing. You know, in situations, yeah, there's, when there's multiple um, actors or characters that are uh, having a shootout, there's going to be more of that. But you know, these guys know how to handle guns. They they you know they've been around guns all their life, so they are pretty. Uh, precise with their with their their weapons, you know. Yeah, it doesn't take six shots to to hit somebody once. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially when they're all majority of them are hunters. You know, their backgrounds. You know, they've been hunting all their life. You know, if you're used to that, you know, you're gonna have an easier time to. to... <laughs> take care of something but yeah that the editing it truly truly impressed me with how you you just kept building and building the tension and the whole time we're becoming more and more engrossed with billy and van and mm -hmm. their pursuit uh, so the stakes are rising and you meet that challenge through your editing Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. We we really spent a lot of time on it to to get it down. And, you know, we could have been done, you know, a little bit sooner, but we we decided to push through it because we thought we could finesse it a little bit more and get it to uh, the place that it is now. So I appreciate you noticing that. You know, what is it, Frederick? Because you've produced other films that you haven't directed, haven't written. What is it about Desolate? Did you know from the beginning that you wanted to direct this one? You know, what is what is that decisive marker for you as to whether you're just going to produce something, if you want to come in as a writer, as a director, or a combination of all of them? So on this project in particular, um, you know, I did have producing background. So, you know, I, and I, I had a couple opportunities to maybe to direct something, but I wasn't really passionate about it. Um, and I didn't think I knew enough yet. Uh, so I learned, I think, through producing, helped me to learn more and more. And, you know, I was always in, in, uh, into, the, you know, the directing and uh, the editing and all that kind of stuff. So that was kind of my schooling. And then with Desolate, you know, I saw the opportunity, you know, to write something. And uh, me and Jonathan Rosenthal wrote it together and, you know, we produced it together. And, you know, from the beginning, you know, I really wanted to, to direct it. So that was kind of the intention from the beginning, to write it with him produce it and also direct it and um you know i just want the reason why i wanted to do all that is because when you are directing it's so close to you and you want to make it you know as accurate as you see it and when you write it so mm -hmm. i found that it was the perfect time to do that you know I, I wrote it and you know i was close to it and i, I felt like you know i can achieve the directing with that you know because it's nerve-wracking directing your first film you know you really have to you know, you want to understand every element of the process. So I felt like it was time to do that on this one. Mm -hmm. Well, the end product belies any kind, any minimal ex directorial experience you may think that you have. Um, it really, it's a very polished work. Uh, and, Thank you. You know, on multiple levels, on multiple technical levels. And, you know, one thing that I rarely get to talk to directors about is your sound. You mm -hmm. have you have a clarity and crispness with your sound here 
that isn't you don't often find in the quote unquote indie low budget no budget films. Yeah. And I really appreciate that you paid attention to the sound design here. And that sure. we we hear yeah, the footsteps. Yeah. You know, sound can really take you out of the film. And I think that, you know, like I said, going back to my producing background, you know, how important sound is and understanding that process and not just... Because a lot of people, you know, you run out of budget and sound is one of the last uh, pieces to the puzzle. And a lot of people, you know, run out of budget and they don't really pay attention to the sound. And I think with a film like this, sound is super important. It's just because you're you're in the middle of nowhere. So you, you really want to achieve that... Um, you know, that nature element to it and your surroundings, and it kind of draws you in closer to what's going on in the scene. And, you know, that, that was really yeah. important to us. You know, how, who was your sound designer and your sound editor on this one? We, we did about uh, Monkeyland Audio. Okay. Um, and they handled, you know, every element of it. And, um, you know, they were fantastic. No, I mean it. It really that's that was something that was that's very impressive because we're out there even down to when, uh, you know, when it comes charging in with the Camaro, the blue Camaro. You you're trying mm-hmm. not not to be, you know, not to be you know ostentatious and showy, but yeah, you're on the run, but you're going to be driving a a blue Camaro. Um, yeah. But even when the brothers and the ones he's getting chastised and yelled at, you hear the sound when the hands slam mm-hmm. down on the hood of the car and it slightly mm-hmm. rocks. You, you can you can hear the sound is so it's so well done that yeah, we, we try to capture every element of it, you know, every little detail It's so is so important. I, I think, you know, I, I think um, I, I appreciate you noticing that as well. Well, hand in hand with the sound also goes your scoring. Mm-hmm. Minimalist. Yeah, Nima. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nima's phenomenal. This is what he does with the score. I get we we get so many compliments on the score. People love the score. And it never overpowers. It doesn't lead you. It's it's its own yeah. subtext. Mm-hmm. What were your what were your your discussions like? When it came to the score, what were you looking for in terms of a tonal balance to go with the film? We wanted to do uh, obviously original. You know, we we wanted to do something that was very different. Um, you know, something that you really wouldn't expect in a score for this kind of film. Um, and we just kind of we had no rules. Honestly, we just kind of tweaked certain instruments and you know certain sounds that we liked. We would play on that even more and. Once we kind of toned in on, you know, certain uh, elements of it, we can kind of, like, play with it from there. And we knew the tone that we wanted, and we just kind of kept it going. Mm-hmm. You know, what is... A lot of playing around. <laughs> well, you, you got to play around Nima, with something. Our composer, yeah, Nima, uh, our composer, he, uh, you know, he, he also, like, invents instruments for certain scores as well, which I thought was unbelievable, so... He made, I think, like a ten-foot string, uh, string instrument, um, and you know would record certain sounds with the wobbly wires. And you know he's just so you know creative, and he would just come out with you know certain sounds, and we would be like, oh yeah, we like that sound a lot. Let's use that, and then kind of he would just play on that and come up with something really original. Mm-hmm. And then of course, then the guys at Monkeyland Audio get to play some more with that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And integrate you know, bringing it. Bringing sound up, bringing sound down, taking it out at certain moments um, when needed. You know, we 
it, there's a lot, you know, it, it's, it's a desolate movie, but there's a lot of sound design in it. And there's a lot of technical aspects where you can really, you can do anything you want. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go loud with something, you can go soft with anything, you can drown something out. You know, and we just played around, honestly, and just, you know, saw what worked best for the scene. And, you know, that's what I loved about working with everyone is like, everyone's so collaborative. You know, there's mm-hmm. no right or wrong. We would just try a bunch of things and see what was the best fit for that scene. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, Frederick, before we run out of time on the show today, um, for, for you personally, because you do have more producing experience under your belt than writing and directing, I'm curious what did you learn about yourself as a writer and director and even a producer in the process of making Desolate? Um, well, honestly, you know, I learned not just about the, the film, but just, you know, honestly, I think I learned my love for filmmaking even more after directing. I think, you know, being a producer, you know, it's amazing, but until I directed this feature, it's, there's a connection to the film that I've never felt like that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the connection with each uh, actor, you know, that bonding experience, the crew, you know, it just, you really build a family, which is, it's wild how close I feel with them. And, you know, after we wrap, it's like, I still miss them. And like, I still talk to them and um, you miss being on set with everyone. And that connection, um, you can't really compare it to anything unless you, you direct a feature and, and do it with, you know, all these great individuals around you. So, you know, that for me was definitely the best part of it. You know, the connection I had and, you know, the love that I had for cinema that I I had in the beginning, but you really appreciate the amount of work that goes into this. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I thought that was a a big learning experience because I thought producing was hard, but, you know, directing (laughs) is extremely, 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 hard on you. (laughs) But, you know, I'm curious because you also have a producer's hat do you ever stop mm-hmm. and think as a director about the cost of something? It's like, oh, God, I can't spend any more time getting another shot here because it's it, we're going to run yeah. into overtime. We're going to do this. Do you find that tugging at you while you're directing? Yes, but I try to, honestly, from the producing background, I try in the writing process to eliminate a lot of those issues that could be budgetary uh, restriction. Mm-hmm. So in writing it, you know, that helped me even write it. You know, we, we would write, uh, me and John would write something out, and, you know, the first draft we go through, and I'd be like, you know, this is this is a little too big. It's already big as it is. It's, you know, when you see the film, it's, it's a lot going on. You know, so we had to tone things back knowing that it was going to take a little bit too long or, mm-hmm. you know, that location or that to achieve that is going to be a little bit too expensive. So I think I was able to, we were able to remove that before we went into production. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're on set, you know, the locations and, you know, the certain shots and the blocking, we were able to not spend too much time. Um, so, but yeah, there's times where you're, you're, you're aware of the budgetary things, but then you know how important the scene is for sales as well and getting it, you know, to that point where you feel like, you know, it's, it's worth it to spend a little bit more time on it. So yeah, it is in the back of your mind a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So where, you know, you're so engulfed in, in the filmmaking, you forget about it sometimes. So like, you know, Johnny and uh, Jordan, who also produced, they would have to come over to me and like, you know, all right, we got to kind of hustle it up. And yeah, I, I agreed with them. You know, you, you're just so in the moment that you're, you're forgetting about how long things are taking. Um, so, you know, it, it's good to have other producers who, you know, kind of come in and be like, 
give you a little reminder. <laughs> so where can everybody see Desolate? Well, it comes out July 12th. That's Friday. We have a multi-city, yeah, yeah, Friday, multi-city uh, theatrical release. Uh, I think we're going to be in L.A., Atlanta, Boston, Dallas, Detroit, Houston, Phoenix, um, San Francisco, and I think there's a couple other cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also going to be on uh, digital platforms as well. So you can see it in, you know, iTunes, Amazon, you know, all the digital, I think, Dish Network and some cable providers and, and uh, on demand. So. Uh, July 12th, we're going to be releasing it all at the same time. Well, and I can't recommend highly enough for people to see this one on the big screen because it is so beautiful. It is so beautiful to see that if you can see it on the big screen, uh, see it. Frederick, thank you so much. I hope you're going to come back on the show again. Oh, I would love to. This is phenomenal. Thank you. Frederick, thank you, and I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. And that was Frederick Cipolletti, writer, director, producer, Desolate, in theaters. I think it's a 20-city release uh, this Friday the 12th and possibly on the digital platforms as well. I'll have to check on that. Uh, but that is all the time we have today. Um, next week, two great guests. I'm very excited. We're going to the beach. We're going to the ocean next week with two documentaries. One on surfing and one on orcas. So I can't, middle of summer, why not? So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 